Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Ethan Cox, co-founder of Ricochet Media. Hello. Hi, Jesse. Ethan, on today's show, we all live in uh, too soon? Way too soon. (laughs) Also, what the hell just happened at Bell Media and CTV News? Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Michael Hill, Mike Bodner, James Williams, Thomas Sala, Catherine Sevenhusen, Tim Sorman, Lorene Anders, and Steph. Hey, I'm Steph, a scientist and former Haligonian currently living in Toronto. I'm happy to support Canada Land for the really phenomenal journalism consistently done by the team. My personal favorites are the backbench comments and shortcuts, but I've also really loved the opportunity to pretend my French is still half decent by listening to Detour, though admittedly at 0.75 speed. Thanks for all that you do and keep up the stellar work. These are some live pictures coming in from the harbor in St. John's, Newfoundland. Desperate search in the Atlantic is underway as their oxygen will soon run out. 
Search and rescue teams are in the North Atlantic working to find a missing tourist submarine near the Titanic wreckage. The search is taking place off the coast of Cape Cod. The U.S. Coast Guard is leading the search along with Canadian military and the Coast Guard. Our crews are working around the clock to ensure that we are doing everything possible to locate the Titan and the five crew members. CNN was reporting that search crews searching have heard banging sounds coming from the depths of those waters. All right, Ethan, this is one of those stories that like cable news covers around the clock. As we record, the five people who went down in this submersible to see the Titanic wreckage have like hours of air left. Hope is diminishing. Either they're bobbing at the surface somewhere and maybe they could be found in the next few hours or they're just never going to be heard from again. Or maybe by the time people hear this, there has been some miraculous recovery and these people are okay, though that seems like a very slim chance. Have you been following the coverage? It's been breathless. I have. And I think, first of all, it's important to note what a tragedy it is. I can't imagine something scarier, really. So I, I really hope that they are rescued. But there's a couple things as well that, that I think are hard to avoid in this story, and one of which is that uh, the, the hubris of, of this type of operation. And, and we've seen come out in the last day or so news reports uh, from previous interactions with this company showing that their approach was very patched together. They were very dismissive of safety concerns, sort of a libertarian approach to, to deep sea exploration and maybe it turns out that's that's a bad approach and I think it's it's also hard to ignore the fact that we have this this breathless coverage of these these millionaires who were on an extreme high risk uh, tourism adventure and just a few days after the the capsizing of a migrant vessel uh, in Greece that killed 300 people which got just a fraction of the coverage and so when I see those two things it's hard not to look at the the disparity there between millionaires who are who are taking this uh, sort of libertarian and cruise down to the Titanic and the, the media attention that that gets. And, and on the other hand, how little media attention it gets when, when migrants uh, die in, in pursuit of a better life. Ethan, we're like watching two movies play out in real time, depending on if you watch this on cable news or if you watch this on social media. Like, if you watch it on cable news, it's like those movies like, you know, Apollo 13 or something. Like that. You know, something's gone terribly wrong and the clock is ticking and, you know, this incredible en engineering feat of trying to find these people and, you know, it's the size of Connecticut and they're going down deeper than anyone can go. But, like, you know, there's like this, like, potboiler thriller of, you know, human drama of these people trapped in this in this tiny space and, and what they must be going through. And, and then... Concurrently, there's like another narrative that we've seen play out recently in recent years of like people suddenly getting very, very famous in the dumbest way possible and everyone going through the uh, histories of the, you know, the billionaire and these Pakistani rich people and, and then the company that did this and finding that they, they like put this submersible together with like parts from like Home Depot or some camping store and they've got like some video game controller. I got these from uh, Camper World. We run the whole thing with this game controller. <laughs> Come on! And the guy's on the record saying like, you know, ah, safety concerns, that's wasteful. I think it was General MacArthur said, you're remembered for the rules you break. And, you know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me. The carbon fiber and titanium, there's a rule you don't do that. Well, I did. You pay $250,000 to go 
really risk your life. Like the amount of pressure, people should not be going this far deep on a lark. Like it's not a research trip. They keep calling and, and they like you, you pay $250,000 for this like wealthy person thrill seeking and they, they treat you like you are Jacques Cousteau. They call you a mission specialist. You're not a mission specialist. You're like a bored thrill seeking gazillionaire. It's just so weird. Imagine if you cut back and forth between those two movies of like these people are making peace with their God or, you know, having emotional breakdowns or trying to solve the situation from an engineering point of view. And then there's like somebody making like a Cardi B meme video or something uh, on the surface. Isn't it sad that you a whole fucking billionaire and nobody gives a fuck about you? A lot of a lot of mockery and a lot of a lot of people are pointing out things you're pointing out. I mean, just to go through some of this. You know, here's uh, some tweets that have been popular and, and I think reflect the mood of things. Kyla Lacey, dying in an ocean as deep as your pockets, in a vessel as tiny as the shanty houses you turned your noses up at, in a darkness as expansive as your ego, going to see the final resting places of the souls whom you disturbed with your curiosity, but they still eagerly welcomed you. Oh my God. Uh, other people just, I can't imagine paying $200,000 or whatever to spend 10 hours in this thing, bolted shut, can only be open from the outside, just for a, a glimpse of the watery gravesite of other people. A lot of people like, like that there's something really untoward, as if we care about like the, the victims of the Titanic, like what you're disturbing their gravesite. And I mean, and, and your point is a good one. And, you know, Charles Lister made the same point on, on Twitter that, you know, last week there was this boat carrying 750 desperate refugees that sank off the coast of Greece. And this is getting more media coverage. My take is a little bit different. Like, we can cover both. I get why we're covering this. You know what I mean? We should cover both. It's not cool that the other thing is just sort of a passing news story and this gets everybody's fascination. But I understand. I understand why we're covering this. I guess I would just cover it differently than like that these are heroes. Human life is sacred. We need to be looking for these people. But it's more like... You know, like when some like redneck hooks up like a thousand helium balloons to like a lawn chair and goes floating over their town. If they get stuck in a tree, like, yeah, we should go and, and try to save them. But it's okay to mock them. Like Jeet here is right about this. It's okay to mock people, not because they're rich, but because they're like, you know, the Coast Guard, the Army, Canadian military is looking like we're spending a lot of money trying to rescue these people who were very clearly putting themselves in danger for some bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that I'm, I'm rooting for them. I hope that they get rescued. I think everyone deserves to be rescued at sea, regardless of, of how much their own misadventure and, and stupidity led them into the situation that they're in. But, but once we get past that, I, I think we need to ask some questions about why this type of expedition is happening with so little oversight, so little uh, regard for safety and, and how much money is being spent. I mean, I think you make a good point. Sometimes when we have skiers, for instance, who, who go into avalanche zones, who get themselves into trouble because they've disregarded safety warnings, they, they end up getting billed for the search and rescue efforts. So, you know, I certainly hope that the billionaires who are in this, this tin can, eh, hoping that they are rescued, are accountable for, for the cost because this is a, a hugely expensive rescue operation that we're in the in the process of and it it's it's totally unnecessary. It's it's totally different than than some sort of normal use of, of maritime transport that leads to a disaster. This this was really a, a kind of a foreseeable disaster. 
Right. I hope I hope they live so that they can pay. <laughs> is, is, uh, yeah, I'm, they're, dude, they're not coming back. I, I'm so, I, I I would I would like. There's nothing I'd rather be wrong about. I guess there's some other stuff I'd rather be wrong about. But I really hope I'm wrong. I hope that they find them. And I hope they make them pay. And I don't mean to make light. You know, they got families and all that stuff. But like for me, I don't hate them. I don't hate these people. Like it just makes me sad. That's my thing with this. Is it, it just makes me sad to think that you could be that wealthy and be so boring, have such limited imagination. Like they have unlimited wealth and they have such limited imaginations as to what they could do with their money. Like they could do anything and billionaires just keep like, it just tells you how bored they're like, I guess I'll do what the other billionaires do. I'll try, I'll go to space for a minute and float around, you know, like I'll, I'll go to Mount Everest and then like some, some Sherpa will have to risk their life carrying my corpse down, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll go see the Titanic, you know, maybe I'll feel something if I see the wreckage of the Titanic. And it's not even like they care so much about, like, it's like not a lot of people will get to see the Titanic. It's only really rich people. So I guess I'll do it. Like, where is the wealthy eccentric maniac who is like, do something different. I'm not even saying do something good. Like, that'd be great if you do something good, but I'm just saying do something like creative, like make a human chessboard or, or like clone a dinosaur, you know? Like, like, like buy a town in the Baltics and, and, and make people eat with their feet. Like something, do something to give me hope as to that it could actually be fun to be ultra wealthy. Because everybody else who gets up and like works for money every day likes to think that it would be fun to be super ultra wealthy, but they just do the same shit every time. And this doesn't seem like fun at all. I can't imagine anything I would hate more than being locked in a tin can with a little screen underwater. Like, why not just simulate it? Why not just go in a tin can on land and have the video show you going down to the Titanic? You would never know the difference, right? If everything went right on this submersible, this Titan, if everything went incredibly right, it still sounds like the shittiest trip. The shittiest 10 hours that I could spend this year would be like in this fear with a bunch of other idiots looking out with limited visibility at ancient calcified shipwreck. Like, I just, I don't understand. I don't get it. And like, I saw this uh, ABC News report and like, they're getting so emotional about it. And the, the, you know, they had the trip is canceled three times in a row and then they finally go and see it. And it's just like, yeah, it's a shipwreck. It's it's the remains of an old ship. Like, I guess you can die now. You did it. And we've all already seen it, right? James Cameron made a movie. So I just, I don't, <laughs> but but I think, you know, there is there is a point here, and, and you alluded to it, which is that this high-risk tourism industry is like the new big thing among rich people. So obviously Everest is a big part of that, going down to the Titanic, these various things. And it just, you do wonder, like, what is going on in people's heads that this is what really gets them excited, you know, and especially in a world where there, there are so many people that could use the help of those resources. There are so many desperate refugees and migrants. And, and I just keep being struck by that, that dichotomy between these, these thrill seekers paying a quarter of a million dollars each to do just the dumbest thing possible with the dumbest people involved at the same time as people are desperately risking their lives to to try and get to safety to somewhere where they can have a better life and and those you know i i i think those those rich people whatever thrill they're seeking whatever validation they're seeking is it just pales in comparison to to some of the real life struggles that we see refugees and migrants going through i mean real talk cuz it's got me thinking about it i think it must be really boring to do the thing that we all want 
rich people to do. Like, you know, like really wealthy people, I think we want them to like do philanthropy and many of them do. And philanthropy is like a fucking, it's a scene, you know, it's like gala after gala and it's like, okay, they'll give you awards and treat you nice and stuff. Or, or you could really try to like roll up your, your sleeves and be like, no, I'm actually trying to solve the world's problems. You can get all like Bill and Melinda Gates foundation about it and be like, I'm not just going to you know, sponsor a wing of a hospital or something. I'm, I'm, you know, like, let's really like, let's approach this the same way we approach building our billions, you know, and, and, and we'll have research and development and we'll go into, you know, and I think that it, that must kind of suck too, because they reach the limits of their powers. Like they, they aren't solving the world's problems. Like I, I'm trying to understand it. Like, like at what point wouldn't you just dedicate yourself? Like you're in a very rare position where you can actually have an impact. Why wouldn't you just dedicate your life to doing that? And there must be a reason. It must kind of suck too. I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe they're just selfish idiots. I don't know. It's a hard question to answer because that's that's exactly the same question that goes through my head, Jesse, is is when you look at this, like people just, you know, and obviously we know about thrill-seeking and thrill-seeking is a behavior that exists in people that are not fabulously wealthy as well. And there's there's an element of thrill-seeking here of needing that that adrenaline rush. But I understand that. I like When I see those videos of the people in like the, the weird flying squirrel suits, you know, and they're like over a mountain, you know, you know the ones I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. That shit I understand. I get that. It doesn't help anybody but you, and somebody's going to have to, like, clean your corpse off of the side of a mountain or something and tell your loved ones. Like, you know, it's, it's still pretty selfish, but I totally get that. I, I don't get this other stuff. I don't get these people going to space for a minute. I it, Like, it's, it's just wild. Like, the only thing about it is the exclusivity, is that you're the only one who gets to do it. Or at least pay your taxes first. <laughs> this episode is brought to everybody by Article... It is like the best part of summer. I am enjoying the weather so much. I am outside so much. Ethan, are you pro-summer or anti-summer? Very pro, very pro. You know, I agree with you there. There's no debate here. Summer is awesome. But you need to have like a nice like area, you know? I don't care if you've got like a tiny little piece of a balcony or if you've got a full patio, like you need to make the most of your space. Article is here for you. They have an incredible selection of outdoor and indoor furniture. Article offers fast and affordable shipping and great prices. My stuff is stylish. It has stood the test of time. It is comfortable. I absolutely love it, and I'm making the most of it this season. It is designed to be outside and stand up to the elements. And they're offering listeners of this podcast 50 bucks off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim it, visit article.com slash CanadaLand. The discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That is article.com slash CanadaLand for a great deal, $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Ethan, do you have a new story to duly note? I wanted to bring uh, to the listeners' attention something that's happening in Quebec that people across the country may not be aware of. The housing minister has has recently introduced a bill that would take away the right for tenants in Quebec to transfer their leases. That might not sound like the biggest deal in the world, but the context is that in Quebec we do have very strong rent protection. Um, you're only allowed to increase rent by about 3% per year. However, Uh, that system is very poorly enforced. And so it basically doesn't exist when there is not continuity from one tenant to another. So one of the only ways the tenants have of, of enforcing those rent controls in Quebec is transferring leases. So so that means that when you're moving out of your apartment, instead of just giving it back to the landlord for him to rent out to whoever he wants at a market rate, 
you can transfer it to somebody else at the same rental rate that you're paying, which may be significantly below uh, below market rent. And what's really interesting about this story is just how significant the blowback has been. Uh, there's a protest organized for Thursday. We've seen the mayor of Montreal condemning the housing minister. We've seen all of the opposition parties condemning the housing minister. And the, the cherry on top, as, as Zachary Kamal and, and uh, Sam Harper have reported for, for Ricochet and Pivot, is that this housing minister is a former uh, real estate agent, a former speculator who has flipped houses, and somebody who was lobbied by their own former business partner just last fall. So somebody who's in in somewhat of a serious conflict of interest here. So things are bad all across the country when it comes to housing, but it is really nice to see a little bit of pushback happening here. And we're still in the nascent stages of that, but it is really exciting to see the population standing up and saying, no, that's enough. We're not going to accept any more attacks on affordable housing in, in this province. So I'm very excited to, to see what happens and very hopeful that the CAQ government of François Legault will be forced to, to withdraw this bill and take back this attack on affordable housing. Ethan, I remember it well. You know, if you hand down your lease to a friend, you know, the landlord can only raise it by the same amount that they could have raised it for you. It's different here in Ontario. As soon as there's a new tenant, you can just charge whatever the market will uh, will bear. And there would be like a mythic apartment, like, oh, this one has been handed down from old college roommates to friends. It's still like $350 a month. It can only raise it by 3% a year, and it's been handed down for the last 20 years. And then there'd be all these like little competitions of like, who's going to get it when that person leaves? for Toronto. And, uh, you know, it was like a very Montreal thing. And, you know, I'll say this, it really like makes things fucking weird. It's a protection for renters. So I think it's something that should probably be kept because housing has gone so, so nuts, but you shouldn't have to hunt for this weird little unicorn of hand-me-down. And from the point of view of the people who are owning those properties, it's like this weird roulette game where it's like, are your tenants going to do that or are you going to be able to get enough rent to cover the mortgages as they shoot up? I know there's a lot of vilification of landlords, but like what you've done is you've created a lot of chaos and uncertainty into like home ownership. I think that there just needs to be like good protections for renters across the board and affordable housing across the board and not these weird little circumstances But it is one of the circumstances that makes Montreal or has historically made Montreal affordable and has, you know, sustained all sorts of nice aspects of Montreal, like the artistic life in Montreal and other things. Anyhow, I'm rambling. I remember these leases. Duly noted. So Sam Cooper is, uh, of course, the reporter formerly of Global News who broke the most recent phase of the uh, Chinese interference story. But I saw something this week, Ethan, that made me sick and made me angry. And I don't think it's anything that should ever happen. And that is members of parliament, liberal MPs, berating Sam Cooper at committee from the legislature. He appeared before a committee and they grilled him on his reporting. Let's hear a little bit of that. Do you agree that that is the ethics guideline that you should be following as a journalist? story stands and we're here today because of a body of reporting and I'll remind the member that I said I'm not going to speak to editorial processes. So is that a no then? You you don't believe that you should follow the ethics guideline for your own profession? The answer, honorable member, is the story stands and the body of work stands. Okay, so we we know that the headline was demonstrably false. All right, Ethan, you know, 
Sam Cooper's been on this show. I asked him questions about his reporting. I'm all in favor of grilling uh, reporters about their reporting. I want to point out exactly what was fucked up about that. For that MP, Turnbull, to be demanding to know how editorial decisions were made. He also asked for uh, materials to be entered into evidence. Uh, He has powers to compel testimony at committee. When you ask for source materials, like this is the same government that wants to find out who Sam Cooper's sources were and like imprison them. This is the same government that was embarrassed by Sam Cooper's reporting and Handong had to leave caucus and he was admonished by another MP for not talking more about his sources or his editorial process. Mr. Cooper, you're here today based on your reports and I was really hoping uh, for some answers and your unwillingness to engage on simple questions and your lack of preparedness to respond to, to, to some of the questions is disappointing. I understand you cannot discuss something that is before the courts. For the legislature to be asking questions about his editorial process or whether he's following journalistic ethics is a very different thing than if any citizen were to ask those questions or if other journalists were to ask those questions or even if politicians were to ask those questions outside of parliament. Uh, I have never seen anything like this. And it was astonishing to me that these members of parliament felt so comfortable with their hostility and bullying that they didn't understand the optics or the transgression that they were making into the free press. I've never seen anything like it before. I, I agree completely. I was really appalled to see this on, on Twitter, to see this clip. And I think regardless of what you think of Sam Cooper's reporting, and even if you think he's a terrible journalist, it doesn't matter. Uh, this this shouldn't be happening. Uh, parliamentarians shouldn't be using their legislative privileges to to go after journalists like this. It's It's horrible to see. Now, I I should say, I don't know how he ended up up there. I don't know if he put his hand up and said, I want to testify, or if he was summoned, and there are all kinds of issues around that. I think that's worth asking, but I I, I think there's no circumstance under which this kind of grilling and this kind of attitude is is warranted. And I got to say, if he was so wrong and Handong was done so dirty, why is Handong not back in the Liberal caucus? Whose decision was that? Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. A fresh round of massive layoffs hit the Canadian media industry today. Big job cuts at Bell Media. The company is cutting 1,300 jobs, closing several radio stations and television bureaus. Listeners in several cities were in for a surprise. CFRN AM 1260 is off air. It is closing its bureaus in London, England and Los Angeles. The layoffs show the harsh reality of Canada's changing media landscape and include some of the journalists you're used to seeing right here on this newscast. Ethan, you know, I don't have much to say about the news coverage of the cuts at Bell or the cuts uh, at CTV News, but I got a lot to say that I learned not from the news, but by talking to sources. I've, I've talked to a number of people at CTV with very close knowledge of this stuff. You know, sometimes we learn a little bit more about what's happening behind a news story, like what happened in the newsroom, what is the context that didn't make it into print, what are the powers that be not allowed to say because they're like constrained to corporate speak, even though everybody knows that it's true. Can I tell you what I learned on background? Please do. All right. So as we know, just to summarize the story, this is massive. You know, Bell has laid off 1,300 people. They've closed or sold nine radio stations, a lot of news talk, a lot, a lot of news analysis. They have closed two foreign bureaus, and this is the CTV National News part. CTV National News is the, by far, has been the number one television news organization in Canada, most successful and uh, probably the biggest. And so it's been odd, their changes since the Lisa Laflamme scandal of like, why would you make this such a big change and get rid of an anchor when you're leading? And now it's massive cuts. They say that they, they, there's a $40 million a year shortfall. Other people say that in the grand scheme of Bell Media, that is nothing. And what what is driving this? The official line is that they are moving to a single newsroom approach across brands. They're uh, looking for greater efficiencies, just the usual like cost cutting stuff. And they're trying to consolidate and they've made some noises about how it's a very difficult regulatory environment, which has created some controversy because of course the regulatory environment is actually more in their favor, arguably, with monies from C11 and C18 that will likely be going to CTV News. So, you know, hard to know what to make of that. There's so many things to say about this story, as you can imagine. I have a few thoughts, but I wanted to start where I think it's often best to start, which is with the numbers. And and you mentioned earlier that they were talking about their numbers are a $40 million loss on news specifically. And I think it's important to, to put that in context because that sounds terrible, right? $40 million, that's a huge loss. How, how do you manage that? Bell, overall, the corporation had $10.2 billion in profits last year, which was up $306 million from the year before. Their profit margin is around 42%. You know, I think it's a little rich for them to be talking about the, the, the public policy environment. I saw a Twitter exchange that I thought was really interesting between Jerry Butts, obviously uh, Justin Trudeau's former uh, chief of staff, and, and Jen Gerson, um, a journalist, and, and they were talking about the fact that Bell has the most favorable public policy treatment imaginable for a telecom. They basically have a license to print money, and the, the unstated premise of that incredibly favorable public policy treatment, something that any telecom 
telecom in any country would, would jump at the opportunity to have what Bell has, is that they would spend some of those profits on journalism. And if that's no longer the case, if they're no longer willing to, to invest in what at this point is sort of a lost leader of, of journalism, then I think it's worth asking if we should be sustaining that policy environment that is so beneficial to Bell. I have spoken to these sources, and here is what I can tell you. This was a huge surprise. It was just a complete shock to people at CTV News. In fact, Richard Gray, who is the executive, he's known as an axe man. He's got, like, no news background. He was the one brought in after Michael Melling, the guy who took the hit and was largely, uh, you know, held responsible for the Lisa Laflamme fiasco. Richard Gray had been doing these, like, town halls with CTV National News where he was trying to tell, like, a positive picture that, like, everything's going great, even though everyone kind of knew that after Lisa left and Omar took over, the ratings took a huge dive. We know that from early numerous data that they lost lost their number one position. Global was beating them. I don't have the ratings more recently, but sources tell me that, no, that like, like they used to win every night and now it's like always neck and neck with Global. The ratings have not come back. But Richard Gray, he was telling everybody a very positive story that, you know, Omar Sakadina, his, his ratings with the key demographic were improving with young people. Everything was looking good. And they were really focused on moving to digital. And, you know, he was pointedly asked if they were considering layoffs. And he said no. And this was just like a couple of weeks before it happened. And in fact, I was at this like gala thing where Lisa Laflamme won this big award. CTV had a presence there. They had sent some of their top people who lost their jobs the next day. This was obviously planned, like, for for this level of layoffs, 1,300 people and top talent to lose their jobs all in one day. It's like they're taking the news hit on one day as opposed to it being, like, another Lisa Laflamme thing that got, like, they completely mishandled. Some interesting stuff I heard. We reported, and our own Sarah Larniuk did a story about the toxic workplace at CTV in the wake of the Lisa Laflamme thing. That story and others prompted a third-party evaluation of the CTV workplace. They hired some company to come in and do an assessment. And in fact, they found they were like breaking the law, that there were people working 16-hour days at CTV and not getting paid overtime. And these third-party consultants said like, yeah, like this is in violation of the law. You could be in really big trouble here. So they went to the newsroom and said, like, to the leaders, no more of this. You're either going to have to stop making people work so long or you're going to have to pay them overtime. And management didn't give them any more money to do this. And everybody was, like, used to working these 12, 16-hour days. It was nuts. At first, they tried to do a system where they brought in, like, a second shift so no one was working too long. And then that didn't work. So then people were back, but then they were paying them the overtime. And ironically, what this led to was trying to actually comply with labor law and trying to deal with the fallout of the Lisa Laflamme scandal led to them spending all their money too soon, which expedited these cuts, right? Here's something, Ethan. What a lot of people in news made note of was just how how drastic this was from a news-gathering point of view. Glenn McGregor and Joyce Napier gone from the Ottawa Bureau. These are news-breaking senior investigative journalists. This is like, what is CTV National News if it's not a news organization that can find things out in Ottawa? And these are two of the top names gone. That was shocking. Paul Workman, he was like dodging bullets in Ukraine, I was told, just like a week ago. And now like that, like that bureau is gone. In the States, okay, this is like, again, it's the biggest TV news outfit in Canada. They are down to one reporter and one camera person in their Washington bureau. Like that is wild. Everything that happens in Washington that affects Canada, there's essentially one reporter from our biggest TV news uh, outlet 
that is still dedicated to doing this. And the, the feeling rank and file is that the decision has been made to no longer be a serious news organization. Maybe management didn't really appreciate the big investigations, you know? Maybe they didn't really appreciate the Patrick Brown story that got them sued. So this is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm learning on background. But all of this newsroom drama is only one side of the story, you know? And when you're talking about 1,300 job cuts, like those dynamics might play a role in who gets the ax, but there's a larger thing playing out here. And the larger thing is like, no one's really disputing what we're hearing from Bell Media itself, which is like, they're just not interested in losing money and, and like no no matter how small they're not really interested in maintaining their number one position in any kind of a legitimate serious way they're really not interested in news this is a divestment this is like the biggest tv news broadcaster in canada saying we're going to do as little of this as we can get away with the other thing here is in terms of national politics it's really interesting the impact this has on pierre polyev and people in the conservative party who have been big on, on the hobby horse of defunding the CBC for years. I think when we see news like this, when we see also what's happening to post media, it becomes that much more essential to have the CBC and in fact to be investing more in the CBC to try and make up for these shortfalls because you know, I think that this story just underlines how broken for-profit news is. And and in a context where, where post-media is disintegrating, where CTV National News is disintegrating, CBC and independent outlets, outlets like Canada Land, outlets like my outlet, Ricochet, uh, become that much more important in that ecosystem because we're, we're some of the only people that are willing to do investigative journalism. Of course, C CTV wants to pull back from investigative journalism. Everybody wants to pull back from investigative journalism because it's a money loser. It's a money pit. And the only possible reason for doing investigative journalism is the public interest. And that, of course, is, is not the motivating factor behind a lot of corporate for-profit newsrooms. You know, I, I agree with you in broad strokes. I think that uh, I make a distinction, which is it's not necessarily that for-profit news has failed so spectacularly. It's that corporate news has failed so spectacularly. Like, we've allowed these massive corporations to take over news. And I think the macro story here is we've allowed consolidation of newspapers. Newspapers, like some newspapers that have resisted the trend of consolidation actually have maintained, like, thriving little businesses. It's just like the weird outliers. But, you know, there was a, a process that took place over decades where there was antitrust resistance to this. There were, like, questions as to whether we should allow these newspaper chains to form. And there was recommendations from inquiries advising against it. But it was allowed anyhow because we don't have strong antitrust in Canada, and it's been disastrous. As you say, the broadcast environment is, is a give and take where we allow companies like Bell to have public property, right? Our wireless infrastructure, our uh, telecom infrastructure, our bandwidth, our spectrum, there's all kinds of, you know, rights of way to like build this infrastructure over our land. We give them lots of things. And one of the things we ask for in return is news coverage. They are telling us very, very explicitly, we don't want this job. And we're going to underserve it. Like, it's not even interesting to them to reclaim their number one spot. It would be great if they were interested in a profit. You know, if they could turn that 40 million deficit into a 40 million surplus, they, they would still be in the news game. And that does have to do with doing investigations. But that is just pennies to them. And it's it's chaotic and it's explosive and it's allowing personalities to become big and it's allowing an element of controversy that they can't control. And the rewards are just not big enough for a company that deals in billions and not millions. So, you know, I, I, I'm all for nonprofit models of news, but I don't think that the problem is the profit motive. I think the problem here is that these massive corporations, they don't want the work anymore. Post media doesn't want the job of delivering news to Canadians in exchange for subscription dollars. 
they're not really involved in that business. Like they've given up on that. They're involved in a very different business. You know what I mean? They're involved in like selling off real estate and cutting jobs and still getting government subsidies and paying off their backers. That's the job they're, they're, they're doing right now. And the executives are paid very handsomely every year to make sure that those loan payments come through. It's not about actually a dialogue with news readers. I still think that you can do news and do news investigations as a service that you provide to paying news readers, but it, it, it's just going to be at a tiny little scale. It's not at this corporate scale. I think corporate news is the thing we, and, and you know, and all of this government policy to somehow sustain and prolong corporate news, it's like you're, you're creating these subsidy programs for these companies that are telling you loud and clear, CTV is telling you like, we're leaving one reporter in Washington. We've just laid off our two biggest news gatherers in Ottawa. We don't want the job. We'll do the bare minimum that you're forcing us to do. That's what they're telling us. Well, I think you make a good point. I think it ties into a broader corporate context in which growth is the be-all and end-all. And I think, you know, we saw uh, earlier this year the, the dissolution of Capital Daily, which was the flagship media outlet of OMG, Overstory Media Group, at a time when, when that outlet was profitable. Not profitable by a lot, but it was paying its, its costs. But that wasn't enough. Because for investors who came in from a venture capital standpoint, they wanted to see significant growth. They wanted to see uh, profits uh, doubling, tripling year over year. And so the idea of being just financially sustainable was seen as a failure, even though it was in fact succeeding in producing the, the, the local news. But overall, I think, you know, I think when, when we look at, at this from a public policy standpoint, and of course, we're also looking at not just CTV news, but post media is in the process of dissolving, right? My, my hometown newspaper, the Montreal Gazette, uh, has just announced the firing of, of, of almost everybody that wasn't already fired in their last round of layoffs. They've let go of their two most senior managers, you know, and post media now is making a case to the government for a bailout. And of course, what we've seen in the past is often the bailout money that comes into post media, rather than being spent on hiring more journalists or beefing up the journalism offering, ends up going out the back door to, to the corporate owners, to the hedge funds that are often located in the United States. You're right. There, there's nothing wrong with for-profit news. And if somebody is running a, a local newspaper as a for-profit business, and they're able to break even, make a little bit of profit, that's great. But Overall, what we're seeing is that these, these corporate news outfits are struggling to, to make a go of it from a business standpoint. And I think when you're the government, you're looking at this, one of the mistakes that the government made in the last round of subsidies for, for the news industry was giving those subsidies to, to for-profit corporate news outlets that, as I said, just turn around and, and push that money back out the door to shareholders. So, from a public policy standpoint, I think what makes sense here is that the government should say, absolutely, we will really subsidize news. We will really support news, but only if you transition into a nonprofit. So post-media, hey, if you need help to keep these newspapers serving their public interest mandate in their communities, great. Transition them into nonprofits that are accountable to their local community, and we'll give you a bunch of money to help 
help do that and help make sure those newspapers continue to exist and serve their communities. But if you're not willing to transition them into a nonprofit, if you still want to have corporate profits coming out of a, an industry that, that no longer is profitable in the way that it used to be from a corporate standpoint, then you shouldn't be getting government subsidies. So that's, you know, I think there's, there's a bit of an easy solution here, which is that the government should be putting a lot more money into CBC, putting a lot more money into nonprofit outlets. And, you know, frankly, if, if outlets and, and chains like Post Media refuse to transition their newspapers into nonprofits, then they should be allowed to die because the, the profitable business model that sustained Post Media in decades past is not here anymore and it's not coming back. That's an interesting idea. I, I've got a slightly different perspective on some of the finer points of it. You know, when it comes to CBC, I think that they should uh, definitely be putting more money into their news coverage. I'm not sure that means more money for CBC overall. Uh, I think uh, it's long overdue a look at where money is being spent, but definitely they need to be uh, doubling and tripling down on news. But, you know, the nonprofit model would certainly be better to subsidize than what they got now. I should note that I, I can't really comment on the OMG thing. I got a conflict of interest where the, the owner is also invested in Canada land, but uh, hear your points there. There is something worse than no news, Ethan. And this is where I will stand up for like the profit motive in news, though it can lead to some bad outcomes and, you know, some, some of the kinds of coverage that we don't want, at least is a dialogue between news and the news public. When you break the profit motive, there are all these warped ways that news can exist to serve other interests, Right. And news outlets can be kept alive as loss leaders, whether it's some wild, weird financing scheme like the vulture capitalist hedge fund with post media or the way that billionaires like to own media outlets or social media companies to get their points across. When you're no longer involved in trying to report news to an audience and somehow turn a buck on it, worse outcomes can happen. And I'm looking right now at the June 21st front page of the Telegraph Journal in New Brunswick. I can't call it an Irving-owned paper anymore because Brunswick News, the Irvings, you know, they used to have a stranglehold on the on the print in New Brunswick, but they sold it to Post Media, but they got a ton of Post Media stock in that deal as well. So they still are owners of, of this uh, coverage of, and this is the coverage of New Brunswick. And we just had a story about possible links between the herbicide glyphosate glyphosate levels turning up very high in people who are suffering from this mysterious neurological disease. That's what our coverage says. Here's what the front page of the Telegraph Journal says today. Glyphosate, I should mention, is an herbicide that is used by no one more than Irving Industries in their forestry operations. Here's the front page of the Telegraph Journal. Feds are adamant. Glyphosate is fine. That's what the newspaper says today in New Brunswick. It's a real issue. And I think you mentioned a couple times dialogue, dialogue with readers. To me, that's, that's everything. The credibility of a news outlet is about its ongoing dialogue with its community, with the members of its community. And, and to add on to what I was saying before, I think we need nonprofit outlets. I think we need nonprofit outlets that are supported by the government in proportion to how supported they are by their community. So I would love to see a system where the number of individual readers that are making monthly recurring donations to a media outlet is the formula by which it is determined how much support the government gives to that outlet. Because you're right, the, the, there, are, there are a lot of different models where, where the motives of, of, of media outlets get twisted. And the most important thing is, is the pact that exists between the, the audience, the consumers, the public, and the media outlet. And we used to have a model for how that was done, for better or for worse. That model, in, in terms of corporate media, is catastrophically broken. 
we need a new model and and I think it it all comes down to to that relationship that dialogue between the the audience the community and and the journalists on this we agree Ethan that shortcuts thank you for joining me thank you so much for having me Jesse okay we're on Twitter at Canada land you can email me about this episode I'm at Jesse at canadaland.com I read everything you send. Ethan Cox, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at EthanCoxMTL. And of course, I encourage everyone to check out ricochet.media where you can find uh, public interest journalism. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by so-called syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. Everybody should listen to this week's episode of Wag the Dog. It is fantastic and fun. Uh, Toronto is in the midst of its most exciting election in a decade, just grazing us, tickling us with the possibility of hope. But does it still make sense to get invested in the outcome when Doug Ford could easily just run roughshod over city council, squashing the new mayor like the Monty Python foot that Terry Gilliam foot could just like, that's like Doug Ford's foot in this analogy. Check out Wag the Doug. City Hall Watcher Matt Elliott joins Jonathan this episode. Allison's away uh, for this one. It's a great episode. If you're not listening to Wag the Doug, this is a great time to start. 102 people who are not Doug Ford is the episode. Just search for Wag the Doug in your podcast app. Listen, um, if you value this podcast, please support us. We actually do want the job of reporting the news and talking about it in exchange for money. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. That's how we do it. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merchandise, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. Great sold-out event in Montreal recently, our first French language event. More than anything, you'll be part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Do it now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.